Well, today uh, brings to an end a series of messages entitled Worry-Free Living. And I thought it would be a, a good way to tie this in together as we recognize our graduates and um, they're going out to, to think about what God wants them to do, uh, where they're uh, they supposed to major, what they're supposed to major in and where they perhaps find themselves employed or going into the military and those kinds of things. They'll be challenged with choices for the rest of their life. But there are two words uh, that are a part of our lifestyle very strongly. One of them you probably are familiar with, and the other one you might not be familiar with, but yet you live it. And the first word uh, is overload. I think that all of us would agree that uh, we perhaps are overloaded in a lot of different areas in our life, which brings stress, and that brings about worry. In fact, in his book, Overload, by Dr. Richard Swenson, he discusses four areas particularly in which we're overloaded. First, we're overloaded with commitments. Secondly, we're overloaded with possessions. We've got garages full of stuff, closets full of stuff, and all that. Then we're overloaded at work, and we have to do the work to pay for the things that we don't need that yet we bought, and we've got them stuffed in storage and all those kinds of places. And then there's an information overload. You know that we get an information overload. You can get text, you can get Twitter, you can get worldwide news everywhere, you know, just at a moment's notice. You're always uh, just flooded with a, with a source of, of information that's really nonstop. And so those are things we know that are reality, that they have overload. The second word is the word hyper-living. And a futurist, David Zack, uh, called our lifestyle today, this frantic pace in which we live, is, is entitled hyper-living. And simply put, uh, it means that we want to do more and more things in less and less time. Now, how do you know you're hyper-living? Well, it could be that uh, you got small children, you say to the children at bath time, bedtime at night, okay, little kids, let's see who can take a bath the fastest and get dressed for bed. You ever caught yourself saying that and doing that? Yeah, sometimes we all, we all have done that, you know. Uh, we do the multitasking things in the car. We drink coffee, we eat breakfast, we talk on the cell phone, sometimes you shave, you put on makeup, uh, and you also give hand gestures all at the same time. That's multitasking. And that's hyper-living. Now, you know you're hyper-living when you come approaching a stoplight. And there are two cars there in front of you, and you look at them, and you think, which one do I want to get behind? And you look at the car, and you look at the driver, how old he or she might be, and how old the car is, and you think, now, which one's going to get off of that light the fastest? And you get in that lane, right? That's hyper-living. Or you go to the grocery store, and you go to checkout, and you keep looking at the, you look at the checkout people, and you think, which one's doing the faster job? Which is the shortest line? And then I like what Kroger has done. I'm not advertising for Kroger, but I like what they've done. After they remodel, they got express lane and it says 15 items more or less. I like that. That's pretty neat, doesn't it? See, that's not legalism. That's grace. So I always look for those lines because I try to keep it below or around 15 items, you see. And, and then, you know, if you, if you, if you like I am sometimes, and you see, well, if I got in line behind that person, I'd be over here, here, and there, and there. And then if you get out ahead of them, you go, yes, I did it, you know. I beat them. So all of those are signs that we're hyper-living. And a Harvard economist says that the average American will work the equivalent of one month longer this year than 20 years ago. How is that? Well, he says you can work harder, play harder, and multitask your way to squeezing 31 hours of activity into a 24-hour day. Now, that's the finding of a study conducted by the American Management Association. And what simply says, what that says is that, is that we can add almost 50% to our productivity at work 
by squeezing in those things in our life. And, and the, but the price of that is tremendously high. What is it? Well, it leads to a sense of fatigue. And all of that leads then to stress and anxiety and fear and anger and agitation. And all of that leads to worry. And we want to talk about a worry-free lifestyle. So how do we slow down so that we can live that worry-free lifestyle when we're overloaded and when we're hyper-living? And I suggest to you by the sermon title is by focusing on our purpose and our priorities. Because when we understand our purpose in life, that enables us to prioritize correctly in the midst of all the choices that we can make. And then we're able to live worry-free. When we look at our scripture today, uh, we find that it's a story about two women, Mary and Martha, that were sisters. And Jesus was invited to come to their house. I would think that most people today tend to be either a Mary or a Martha. And most Christian women, I think, would know what I mean when I say that. Generally speaking, Marys tend to be quieter and more contemplative. And Marthas are more highly driven, organized, and outspoken. Uh, even though this is a short passage and recorded only in Luke's gospel, it I think is rich with some things that will challenge us uh, to live a worry-free life if we understand what Jesus is teaching us in this setting. So here's the scripture in Luke 10 beginning in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You were worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Several weeks ago, I also referenced Mary and Martha and this painting uh, that uh, was done by 17th century Dutch artist uh, John Vermeer. And I think you can see there by the painting, by we look at it again, uh, Mary there is at his feet, just like she's taking in every word like a sponge. And it looks like Martha has got his attention so that Jesus has to lean back, not really wanting to hear her complaint, knowing that it's coming. And it looks like Martha is there uh, giving her complaint about Mary not helping her with what she wants to do. Now, this is where I regret that Paul Harvey has died, because I would love for Paul Harvey to be able to come in and give me the rest of the story. Don't you wonder what happened after this? What happened? You know, I, w- I just would like to know. Did Martha calm down and sit at the feet of Jesus? Or did Mary feel guilty and get up and go to the kitchen and help her? You know? We, we don't know, do we? And that's the interesting thing about this story. We're left to speculate about it. And we're left to make our own decision about that. One lady who claims to be a Martha suggested this is what had happened. That Martha probably returned to the kitchen, turned that gourmet meal into a snack, brought it out, sat at the feet of Jesus. When Jesus was through with his teaching, she sat down, put up her feet, and Mary and Jesus went in and cleaned up the dishes. Do you think that happened? I don't think so. All right, now, how do we apply then this scripture to our life about slowing down and not worrying? Well, here's the first thing. Welcome Jesus into your home and into your heart. I think it's obvious that Martha had the gift of hospitality, and she welcomed Jesus. She invited Jesus to come to her house. 
That suggests to us that you need to make sure that Jesus is the honored guest in your home all the time. Open up your home to Him and acknowledge His presence in your life and in your family. Scripture gives us some accounts of where Jesus ate in the homes of various people like at Matthew's and Simon the Pharisee and Zacchaeus' home and probably at at Simon Peter's home where he found his mother-in-law was sick with a fever. But Jesus not only wants to be in your home, He wants to be in your heart. He wants to be in your life. In Revelation 3 we find where Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. You've got to remember that the door to your heart is not on the outside where Jesus can open it and force himself in. It's on the inside where you have to open it and let Jesus come in. So I encourage you, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've never made that decision... The first step in dealing with your anxiety and prioritizing your life and living worry-free is to know your Redeemer, your Savior, Jesus Christ, the forgiver of your sins. To have Him in your home as the head of your home and to have Him in your life as your Savior and your leader. Invite Jesus to be the head of your home and the guest in your house permanently. Then the second thing I think that this story shows us is that we have to learn to deal decisively with distractions. We look at verse 40, the scripture says, But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. It's very interesting that the word there, distracted, means to be pulled away. In fact, it means to be pulled in many different directions. You see, when we live in this society today where we are overloaded and where we hyper live, we're pulled in so many different directions. How in the world can we possibly know our purpose and establish our priorities when we're pulled in so many different directions? Martha was pulled in so many different directions because she was duty bound. And so she was distracted from the very presence of Jesus. Now I want to make a confession to you. I cannot give acknowledgement as to where I saw these. But uh, they were in my notes on this passage of Scripture. And I don't know who, who came up with these insights. But I think they're very insightful. And I just simply want to share them with you about how you know when you're, when you're distracted. And you look at Martha to know that. First of all, I know I have been distracted when I begin to blame Jesus for my worry. What does Martha say in verse 40? She came to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care? You see, Martha was so distracted by what was going on in her life, not going on in Mary's life in terms of activity, helping her be hospital, that she became uh, distraught and distracted from what was going on with Jesus being in her home. See, if you're busy and your life is so stressed out that it's out of control, sometimes you're perhaps tempted to think, you know, God doesn't care about me. If he did, he'd slow things down for me. And that's not the case. You simply have been distracted and you have begun to blame Jesus Christ for your worry. The second way you know you've been distracted is when you throw a pity party. Have you thrown a pity party lately? See, Martha says to Jesus, my sister has left me to do the work by myself. I think Martha wasn't so much burned out as she was burned up. Because there she was doing all the work, it seems, and her sister Mary is just sitting there, pretty as you please, sitting at the feet of Jesus, just taking in everything that Jesus had to say. You see, if you're focusing on your particular individual need and expecting everybody else to be on board with that, then you're going to be distracted and throw a pity party. Uh, Charles Hummel in the booklet, The Tyranny of the Urgent, says, Tension and frustration mounts 
when we are trying to cram too many activities into a given period. And a critical spirit develops and we begin to judge and condemn others for what they do or do not do. Another word for throwing a pity party is to have a martyr syndrome or complex. It's just when you take on too much and try to do too much and maybe you feel like you go unrecognized and so you have a little pity party for yourself. Then you know you've been distracted when you develop a demanding spirit. In verse 40 she said, Martha says, tell her to help me. Like she's saying, Jesus, if you really cared for me, you would tell Mary to get up and help me. You're part of the problem too, not just my sister. Now, can you imagine that, saying that to Jesus Christ, the Lord God in the flesh? You see, Martha not only wasn't sitting at the feet of Jesus, she commanded Jesus to tell Mary to get up and help her. She was ordering God around. Only God is God, and we're not. God is sovereign, and we can't tell him what to do. And it's a shame, a blasphemy, I believe, if we do that. And then I know that I've been distracted distracted when I begin to lose the war with worry. Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. I think the way Jesus repeats her name twice uh, shows that he loves her, he's concerned about her, he cares for her. But he's a little bit dissatisfied with her attitude at that point. And see, he recognizes that her worry has hurt her relationship, both with him and with Mary. You see, every day of our lives, there will be things that can come into our life that can distract us from Jesus. And we have to learn to deal with them decisively. And that means that we have to learn how to prioritize the things in life. See, the people that bother us, The things that make us worry, our own pity parties, our disappointments, even with God. All of those things factor into our life about fear, anxiety, and worry. And we have to learn to deal with those distractions in life. And the best way that we do that is the third thing I think that this story tells us. And that is that knowing your purpose defines your priorities. So when you know your purpose, then I think that helps you prioritize your life with the things that are most important. I received an email this week about a man by the name of Lawrence Peter Barra. Any of you have any idea who he is? How about if I give you that his nickname is Yogi. You know who I'm talking about? Some of you old longtime baseball fans that go way back like me. Remember Yogi Berra? Played for the New York Yankees, 19 seasons, was on 10 World Series championship teams. He's in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, consistently ranked as one of the best catchers ever to play the game. There he is in his catching outfit. He was voted to the team of the century in 1999. You know, Yogi's known for being a great ball player, for being a Yankee, for being a player, for being a coach, being a manager. But probably what he's most famous about is his nonsensical quotes, the statements that he made. It was interesting that this week uh, on Twitter, his granddaughter tweeted that Yogi was turning 89 this week. And at the same time, one of our church members sent me an email about Yogi and about 21 of uh, the most favorite of these um, misquotes that he came up with. I just want to share a few of them with you. First of all, Yogi is quoted as saying, it's like deja vu all over again. He talked about in an interview about why they lost the game. And he said, we made too many wrong mistakes. 
Yogi also is quoted as saying, you can observe a lot just by watching. A nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. He talked about one of his players in an interview and said, he hits from both sides of the plate. He's amphibious. And he says, if the world was perfect, it wouldn't be. Now, Yogi has a rational way of explaining all of those things and how they make sense. This one, number seven, makes sense to me. Yogi says, if you don't know where you are going, you might end up someplace else. That makes sense, doesn't it? For every one of us. We could hone down on our graduates right there from high school and say, if you don't know where you're going, and that means what your purpose is and all of that in life, you might end up somewhere else. Stephen Covey talked about climbing the ladder of success and getting to the top and finding out that your ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. A lot of people have done that in life. A lot of people have done that in life. So I think Yogi is right when he says, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up someplace else. I think that talks to us about knowing our purpose and what God wants us to do in life. And that's more than just simply answering the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you want to be when you get out of college? Or what do you want to be when you serve your time in the military? Or what are you going to major in when you go to school? It's more than that. It's knowing why God created you. And why God created us is because God created us for Him. We're created by God for God. And I'll go on to say that you find your purpose in life in a relationship with Jesus Christ and nowhere else. You discover meaning and purpose only when God is the reference point of your life. He created this world for us. He created us for Him. He created eternity for us so that we could spend it with Him. And without that relationship, your life is meaningless. But you see, when you're in that relationship, then you know God's purpose. And that will reduce stress. It will focus your energy. It will simplify your decisions. It will give meaning to your life and prepare you for eternity. And see, when you know your purpose then, that defines what you do and what you don't do. And that's in terms of the priorities of life. Your purpose in life becomes the standard that you use to evaluate the activities in your life that are essential and which are not. And you see, that's virtually a smorgasbord of activities and things that we can do day in and day out. And a lot of people do them, and they don't mean anything to them. They really don't add value to their life. They don't give any meaning. They don't support their purpose in life. But we like so many options to choose from. And we, and we have them. I have to trust the research on this. This sounds to me like an inflated figure. Maybe some of you know this to be true. But but I'm told that there are more than 800,000 apps in the Apple Store app selection. Is that correct? Any of you found that to be true? Let's just say there's a lot of them, okay? A lot of them. Um, Here's another one to think about. If you go to a restaurant, let's say Cheesecake Factory. Some of you have probably eaten there. I've eaten in one in Charlotte, and it was very good. I liked it. I didn't notice this, but I'm told that there are 240-plus selections on the Cheesecake Factory, not counting the daily specials. That's a lot to choose for a minute. Ladies, you go to the typical cosmetic counter at any department store, and there are 135 mascaras, 437 lotions, and 1,992 fragrances. That's a lot to choose from. 
In 1980, the typical credit card contract was about 400 words long. I never read them back then. Today I'm told that they're 20,000 words long. I don't read them today. And maybe read not read them is why some people are in some trouble financially with debt, with credit cards. But let me tell you about a country that's eliminating some of the complexity of life, and that's the supermarket Trader Joe's. How many of you have been in Trader Joe's? You notice something about that? They don't have 40,000 items like most grocery stores do. They're down to where they carry only about 4,000 items. So you have far less to choose from, but what they give you is supposed to be the best choices and supposed to be quality. Now, you see, how, how, how well does it work for them? Well, I think it works pretty well because um, out of 350 stores in the United States, the sales for Trader Joe's were estimated at about $1,750 in merchandise per square foot. And that's more than double the sales generated by Whole Foods Market, which is comparable to Trader Joe's. So it's working for them. Guess what? If you have that same approach in your life, less to choose from, but greater value, then you'll be less stressed in life. You'll be less worried in life. And you will make better decisions in life. But how do we arrive at that point? Well, we look at Mary seated at the feet of Jesus. And when we see Martha, we see that she's anxious and she's angry. And so the question comes then, well, what is our our priority? Are we just to worship Jesus or are we to serve him? Is Jesus more pleased when we worship him and sit at his feet? Or is Jesus more pleased when we serve him? And the answer is, yes, it's both. Yes, it's both. See, what happens when we sit at the feet of Jesus? Whether it's in our individual time of devotion and we open our Bible and say, God, speak to me. Or whether it's in a public gathering like this in corporate worship. See, what happens is that we love him. We bow before him. To sit at someone's feet was a sign of honoring that person and being subservient to that person. Paul said he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And that's another sign of that being being. Uh, submissive to his teacher. Not only do we love him and show that respect and worship, but we listen to him. Jesus would say, open my heart. Let me be a disciple with ears to hear what you have to say to me. I'm listening. You speak. You see, there's a difference sometimes between Mary's and Martha's. Mary's love worship. Worship services should not end for Mary's. They love it. I could go on another 30, 45 minutes and Mary's wouldn't be bothered at all by it. But Martha's are sitting there saying, hurry up and get this thing over. I've got things to do. Right? Some of you are Martha's. You're saying this thing should have ended 10 minutes ago. That's the difference in, in that. But notice how Jesus brings these things together. See, after Martha's complaint, she waited for Jesus to render his decision. And, and he said, it, it, she hoped that Jesus would say, Mary, Martha's right. Get in the kitchen and help yourself, sister. But instead he said, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. What Jesus teaches us there is this. Work that is not based on worship produces anxiety. So we're worried about whether we're doing something right. It results in anger. Martha's angry. She's frustrated. She developed a spirit of criticalism, cynicism. And then it results in agitation. That's the word being upset. And that's far from living a worry-free lifestyle. But on the other hand, worship that doesn't produce work is shallow. 
So the opposite danger is found in spending all of your time at Jesus' feet and never getting up to do any service or ministry in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's when your worship is very, very, very shallow. All most people want to have is just a feel-good experience in worship. When worship doesn't produce work or service, it's also self-serving. So if you come into a worship experience and you leave and you say, that didn't do anything for me, you're wrong to begin with because when you come into worship, it's not about you. It's about God. Worship is about glorifying God. And what typically you find if you develop that attitude that says, that didn't do anything for me, or you hear somebody else say that, you know what? It's not long before they're gone to somewhere else so they can get that emotional high that they need. And most of them, I've observed this from 38 and a half years in the ministry. Most of those kind of people never do anything to serve Christ. They just want to get their needs met. So, you see, what it boils down to is this. Knowing Jesus intimately is the better thing that Mary chose. Jesus said, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, when you look at verse, the last few words of Luke 10, Jesus says, you have to choose. She's chosen that better part. And Jesus said it will not be taken away from her. It's the greatest decision that you can make in prioritizing your life. It's knowing your purpose. And when you know your purpose, that you're created by God to worship God, to honor God, to live in relationship with Him, then you establish your priorities based on that. And your worship turns into worshiping God and honoring God and all for the glory of God and not about you. And then your ministry and your service is not driven simply by the fact that you want to find something to fill your time. Or you want to do something that will get you honors and something that will get you noticed and something that will get you rewards in heaven. But you simply want to do it because you love God and you love Jesus Christ and you've been at His feet. See, worship always must precede work. But then it becomes a beautiful cycle where worship leads to work, which leads to worship once again. So if you're stressed out, if you're like Martha and you're torn in so many different directions that that you're frustrated, you're angry, you're blaming God, you're having a pity party to top all pity parties, let me tell you to look at Mary. I don't want to have a sibling war going on here, but just look at Mary. That she had that balance, I think, in her life of sitting at the feet of Jesus and then being able to serve him when the time came. And so my prayer for us as we bring this message and this series of messages to a close is this. That you will begin that worry-free life as you enter into a relationship with God knowing that he created you for that purpose. He put eternity in your soul so that you could live in relationship with him now and live with him forever in eternity. And when you know that, then you begin to prioritize the actions and the attitudes and all that you are tempted by to distract you in this world. You will prioritize what you do by your purpose, which is to bring glory and honor to God. Graduates, we wish the very best for you as you leave and go, some of you to the military, some of you to colleges. And and you've got it in your mind what you want to do and what you want to major in. And that's great. But always be open to what God would say to you. Find your time to sit down with your Bible and say, God, speak to me. Let me hear what you're saying to me. 
Let me know what you want me to do. Because whatever you do in life, make it honorable. And at the same time, use it to glorify God. And my prayer is that for all of us today, that we would have that relationship with God. You'd make that decision if you never have, and you would prioritize your life to glorify God. And you know, when you, be, when you do that, when you live with that one purpose and that one priority in life, you know, you, you'll discover that there's so much less stress and less worry in your life. You'll say, why didn't I do this sooner? Well, today's the day to do that. Today is the day to make that decision. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the opportunity that you give to us that we can be in relationship with you. And so that we can find our purpose knowing that we were created to love you and to worship you and to spend eternity with you. And Father, in that relationship with you, may we, may we find how to prioritize our life and the actions of our life so that we can be stress-free and worry-free. We want to commit our life to you through faith in Jesus Christ so that we can begin that life that you want us to live. And I pray that all of us here today will make these decisions to your glory through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.